You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This is Postmortem, and I'm Mick Garris. Let's take a moment to consider the character actor, and in particular, the genre character actor. The character actor can have a very long professional life, much longer than the usual leading man or leading lady. In decades past, there were countless examples of actors who led very long professional lives in horror and science fiction films, especially villains and monsters. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, Lon Chaney Jr., Vincent Price, Anthony Perkins, the list goes on and on and on. These days, like modern-day filmmakers within the horror community, the familiar names and faces are fewer and further between. Robert Englund is one who keeps on working and doing great work in the field. Bruce Campbell is still at work slaying the evil dead as Ash 35 years after creating the role. The list of genres name actors gets pretty short after them, but one of them stands out. He's still evolving, still working, racking up an amazing amount of credits since he really made a name for himself in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Jeffrey Combs is one of a kind. It's a very different time for an actor these days, and the options are incredibly more diverse. Though most genre character actors find themselves primarily in independent productions, many of them have crossed over into mainstream television series, web series, games, and even animated cartoons. Jeffrey Combs has done it all and always brings his own special personality to the mix. Still working with Stuart Gordon in the stage production, Nevermore, Jeff's list of credits is longer than Pinocchio's nose and full of meat and potatoes. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. So you're a native Californian. What kind of a neighborhood did you grow up in? Idyllic Americana, tell you the truth. I grew up about an hour north of Santa Barbara, Paradise, uh, America's Riviera. Uh, uh, my small town called Lompoc. And the butt it, of many jokes in movies and yes, TV shows. Not yes. Lompoc, Lompoc, right. Indian name. I believe it means where, where the waters meet. It was a small, 21,000 people. I had a bike. It's all I needed. It was very simple. Uh, both my parents were from the Ozarks, but they'd come to California after the post-war where jobs were. Thank God they did. Schools were great. Uh, the weather was fantastic. And I got a wonderful education. Uh, was this a working class community? Very working class, a mix, a very strange dichotomy of agri agribusiness, agriculture, mm -hmm. that Lompoc was at the time called the Valley of the Flowers. Ah. <laughs> I, I would walk through flower fields on my way to school. This is a little too Dorothy for me. And yet, <laughs> over over my head, three-stage Titan rockets okay. were being launched from <laughs> Vandenberg Air Force Base. We've just leavened the field of poppies here. So tell me about my angst and confusion here. I, idyllic and I could be dead tomorrow. Did you do you remember air raid practices from that era? Uh, weekly they were duck and cover. Really? Uh I was very aware when I was a kid lying in bed at night with the shadows dancing in the room that I lived next to probably target number one on the west coast if 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 launched if, if missiles were ever it's launched. It's like inv invaders from Mars begins with it. Gee whiz seeing that thing. Yeah, crash. it was not a like well maybe it is no, I will be vapor. Yes. So so there was a kind of a dread mm. and yet but uh, still idyllic. Idyllic beauty and right. it could be done 
tomorrow. Right. Interesting. Interesting. How early did you know that you wanted to be an actor? Or was that what you wanted to be first of all the creative pursuits? Mick, I don't know. It was very raw. I do know this, that we had a TV with three channels. Of course, that expanded when we got cable to 13. Right. With the punch button box, right? (laughs) Well, there wasn't even a punch. But yeah, it was just very simple in the very beginnings of that, all of that. So I was fascinated with what was going on in that box that looks like fun. And of course, going to the movies and I had a proclivity to reenact it. Uh-huh. I would go to my room and, and, and mimic what I just saw. I, I, I know that. Were you an only kid or did you? No, have no, no, no. I uh, grew up in a brood of, there were seven of us, oh. uh, not all living in the house at the same time, wide stretch of time between same us. Same with me. Two dads, seven kids combined. Yeah, people ask me, we Catholic? And I say, no, <laughs> prolific. Uh, so so uh, I was a middle, youngest boy, uh, two younger s- sisters, a, a younger brother actually that, that passed away quite young hmm. when I was in the fifth grade, and then um, the two older brothers and two older sisters. And so most of them, you know, the older ones were out of the house, and so I was sort of a middle child, kind of left to my own devices. Both my parents worked, so it wasn't like, uh, and I have to say this about my parents, they never got in my way once I said, you know, I kind of maybe want to pursue this. It was not a, uh, I hear so many people who say, my parents just didn't. For, yeah, yeah, study they, for something no, just in case no, this doesn't yeah, work no, out. No, no, they were very, um, it's your life. Um, That's great. But I drew when I was a kid. I love to draw. That's the first thing that I ever did was drawing. Yeah, me too. That's great. So is that what you imagined you would do? Like, Was it cartooning or illustration cartooning, that you were interested in? Cartooning. Mostly, actually, faces hmm. and usually character faces, right. which in retrospect, I imagine is exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I was always interested in people, characters, their behavior, stories. Uh, there was a big tradition in in the South. I remember people would come over and visit, have coffee, and tell stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all the other kids would go play, and I would be in the corner, as surreptitious as I could, just to hear this stuff, because uh, it was kind of much more interesting to me than right. playing, you know, life spinning a wheel in the back or a bottle so did (laughs) so did you do this on your own were you close with your siblings or was this something that was only your pursuit this this uh drawing and acting yeah none of my other uh siblings my sisters uh, had any kind of uh leaning in this way at all i was sort of the the odd one i was the only one that had well bad eyes I, I had that, you know, for I, second grade, they no, tested me and went problem here. So that sort of set me apart. I'm also the only one that's left-handed, if that has anything to yeah. do with it. So I was always saw it different. Did you feel outcast or were you welcomed into, did you have a lot of school friends? Uh, I find that a lot of people who work in the genre as writers and directors or musicians particularly, usually were not part of a big social circle. But as an actor, I would imagine socialization is kind of a big part of it. 
I would say that I could get along with just about anybody. I don't, didn't really have like a click, particularly. I seem to be more of a roamer. Mm. I could be hang with the 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 jocks uh, just as easily as I could with my good friend who, who throwing pottery in the uh-huh. art department. Or um, I was kind of a a, a free agent, just kind of uh, got along with, found interesting things about most everybody which is pretty amazing in high school age where it is all clicks and social strata yeah yeah, uh, uh, yes well how did you how did you start to shift your focus from cartooning and was it animated cartoons you wanted to do or or illustrated cartoons i really don't think it was formed in my mind i think it was more of a an urge an expression that i just had to get out you just love to draw i just love to draw and and um mostly people Mm. And I would, I, w- I wish I had them, uh, yeah. but I have very few of them. And um, do you do it anymore? I don't. I don't do it anymore. And sometimes I say I should, but I, but I, I uh, rarely. It's I... interesting because my father trained as an artist. He went to art school and everything, and, and was very good. But never, you know, he was raising four kids in the 1950s. And worked, uh, you know, at the the aerodynamics uh, plant in the valley. He put it away. Yeah, put it away. He just stopped. And I started doing that. But once I started writing, I quit drawing too, and I haven't drawn in decades. And then I found drums. Me too, (laughs) Nick. (laughs) We are brothers. From other mothers. (laughs) Amazing. And then I found drums. Uh, I always, when I listen to music, and we grew up in a time of an explosion of very rich, dynamic music. And I was always driven to the rhythm. Yeah. Always driven to the drums. Ringo and Ginger Baker, you know, the, the drummer for... What Chicago? Right, for, yeah, amazing stuff. He was 16 years old, I believe. Yeah. Zeppelin. I mean, yeah. uh, I was just the drums, yeah. and I begged my parents for a, a drum set. And a, a one Christmas, I got a snare drum. Not quite what I wanted. <laughs> That's all I had too: a snare drum and a high uh, and a high hat. And then the next year, I did get a drum set. Nice. And it wasn't a very good one, as I recall. The name of the drum company was called Trump. Oh, Jesus. Uh, nothing it had to, to do. be terrible. Well, it had a little logo of cards, you know, so it was like, I don't think it had. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't very good, but they, they made me happy. You know, I had right. a hi-hat and I had a pedal and I had a cymbal and I'm good. Did you join a band? Uh, for maybe a New York minute. Uh-huh. I was mostly in my room learning uh, in a Gata De Vida solo. Oh, yeah, and, that's a 17-minute spectacular. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> So then when the acting bug hit me in late high school and I knew that I was going to go off to college and pursue it, I just, I knew that the kit could not go with me. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of sold it and and then just annoy everybody with my, uh, <laughs> everywhere I go, will you just stop, please? Stop Tapping that. out in a Gata De Vida yeah. with your hands. When I, even to this day, I hear music, it's, it's the drums that I go to first. So how? How did you decide to pursue an acting career? Did you see it as a career or just something that interested you? Well, it always interested me, but I didn't think of it as a career, as just more as something that I was 
drawn to and fascinated by. I, I took a, it's, it's an old story. I took a drama class when I was a, a junior in high school for an easy A in the meet girls. <laughs> and why else does any high school boy do drama? Why else? Yeah. And then, um, uh, the first play came along and I didn't even audition. Because, you know, I don't want to put makeup on. That's right. It's um, that's not happening. <laughs> and and uh, the acting teacher stopped me three days later and said, can I talk to you? Why didn't you audition? I said, because I'm not, not interested. And he said, well, someone dropped out and I want you to take the part. And I mm -hmm. said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and him and a good friend of mine who has now passed away cornered me and berated me, really, for 30 minutes until just to get rid of them, I said yes. I regretted saying yes. Why did I do this? And then opening night when I said my first line and got a huge laugh, it was like morphing to my brain, and I realized I'm home. That changed your life. Kind of did. That set the course of your life. Kind of did. And then I did all the plays. And then I was very fortunate that the next town over was a community college with an incredible theater plant run by a visionary man. And I'd seen some plays there and I went, that's where I'm going. Which school was it? it was, it's the, the college is called Alan Hancock community college in santa maria california but the plant the theater plant is called the pacific conservatory of the performing arts oh that sounds classy pcpa <laughs> and it was a mecca of truly incredible talent many of them still working today um i spent a summer with robin williams was in the company wow um, a lot of people went through there so actors have varying approaches to their work. Kurt Russell once told me when I interviewed him for the making of The Thing. Oh, uh, <clears throat> once told just me... stop you know, right there. That's, that's good. Yeah, he good just now. says, it's, it, it, for me, it's easy. Acting's bullshit. It's easy. Anybody can do it. You know, you, you either do it or you're not. Then there's somebody like Dustin Hoffman who agonizes over every single word, every single movement, every single detail. You're a very studied actor. Where do you place yourself on that scale? Intuition versus... Work sweat. Both. I work it to death in my own way. A lot of pacing, a lot of thinking about it, uh, a lot of uh, private attempts at different stuff. I, I find I work best once I've got words out of the way, and then it's uh, and then it's like forget all that and just do. Right. Just be in the moment. Acting yeah. is not thinking. It's acting. It's an active, and so you kind of have to remember to forget right and um and 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 i think a lot of it is on instinct especially oh um best example of that is when when i would do star trek and they would they would say you know we want you to play this role um show up at 4 30 in the morning well i have no idea what the guy looks like mm -hmm. i have no idea what i'm you're I've about got, to be made up, right? I've got yeah. words, and I and I work them as best I can, but I don't know who he is. And then you're ready, and they need you in ten minutes for rehearsal, and you've only just gotten into this space and this costume and this face, and then you have to fly by the seat of your pants. I sort of liken it like a test pilot, mm -hmm. you know, see if this flies, and well. I think if I do this, it'll work. 
as a director, when I work with different actors, um, you find out very quickly who works best under what circumstances, because when you're going to shoot co coverage of a scene, you find out the actor who's best when they're fresh on their first take, uh, and then they start to lose it, or an actor who takes a few takes to ramp up. You want to save his coverage for later. Where do you put, find yourself on that? Are, are you best when it's new or, and there are those actors who are consistent throughout. I will, will probably waver between getting it good the first time mm -hmm. just because it, the adrenaline is going and I got nothing to kind of, it's, it's kind of like because of my theater training. Uh, once you start, uh, you gotta go. There's no cut. So I sort of, kind of have that in my DNA go. So if I were to ask you which you would prefer to be in order of coverage, you'd want to go first. Um, maybe. Depending on who you're Depending upon with. who I'm working with, what the, what, what the complexity of the, the scene is, what, what's asked of me in the scene. And, uh, but on the other hand, I also find that, wait a minute, can I do another one? I have an idea. Uh, Sometimes that works really well for me, too. So you studied at a conservatory. Um, normally, we think about theater as opposed to film. Did you see your career going towards stage, towards television, towards features? Um, well, I always wanted... Um, I would say acting began for me because of film and television. Uh -huh. they, that was my first uh, uh, inkling that, ah, oh, this could be something that I'd like to do was because that was my um, that was my first uh, taste of it. Right. Uh, and then once I started doing theater, I realized this is a high and noble calling here. And and there's a, other challenges to a live performance, much like a musician who isn't in the studio, but is in front of a, an audience. There is a connection between actors on stage and, and an audience that cannot be duplicated. And so uh, I would say that I then sort of, my focus went to theater. And after I had, went, went through training programs, PCPA and, and a University of Washington training program, I started doing re, uh, regional theater, Old Globe, South Coast Rep. I, I was a gypsy. I was just bouncing around doing plays or seasons. Mostly West Coast. It's Mostly like. West Coast. And uh, that was the circuit that I uh, that I sort of knew. For in, for a little while, I moved to New York when things quite up. But, uh, but an agent saw me in San Diego. Uh -huh. At the Old Globe? At the Old Globe. And on my birthday, as I recall. Ah, here's a gift. And she said, what are you doing after this? I'd like to represent you. I have an office in New York and L.A. I chose L.A. Wow. And that, so that was great. I came to town, unlike many actors, they come here with just nothing. 20 bucks in their pocket and sounds, slicking on a bed. Sounds frightening. Yeah, on a me. couch. I knew I wasn't ready until then. I, I, I didn't come and pursue this place until I was in my uh, late 20s. Well, I remember in 1981, I was doing specialized publicity at Universal for things like The Thing and Videodrome. 
And um, there was a movie that came out around then from the studio that I didn't work on called Honky Tonk Freeway. My very, oh God, Honky Tonk Freeway. Your first movie. And here it is directed by the director of Midnight Cowboy, John Schlesinger. And how intimidating was that? I know it was a small role. You were a drive-in teller or something? I was a drive-in teller. It came about this way. I got an audition. I went in, uh, and I was paired up with Jonathan Frakes. Oh, wow. There's a future that we'll talk about in a bit. Right. (laughs) And it comes back, too. So Jonathan Frakes and I, all actors kind of, hey, you know, and I know. And so, yeah, yeah. So we were paired up to be two guys stealing a car. Improv, go. So we kind of did it, and um, I got a call from my agents and said, you know, you you, you got a part, but not that one. Uh-huh. So you, you you got a part. So it this was, is your first time. This is the first. Uh, well, it wasn't my first audition, but it was my no. first gig. John Schlesinger was the sweetest, sweetest, most unassuming man. And I did my day, and it was sort of a metaphor. They handed me as a prop thousands of dollars. (laughs) And I'm like, well, now that's a prop. And then some months later, my agents called me and said, John Schlesinger called, and he wanted to know if you could come to his office and read the play True West. Just read it into a tape recorder. Because he's, he's directing it at the National Theater in, 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 in England and he, in, and he wants authentic Southern accents for his actors. Authentic Southern California accent. <laughs> well, you know, both my parents are from Arkansas, so it oh, wasn't, wasn't too hard. <laughs> so, so I was just honored by that. That was very Clinton-esque, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a different thing. <laughs> Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. So that reading did not result in you doing the play with him? Oh no, because he was in the UK. He right. just wanted he, he just wanted he to just, his voice. ear told me that guy has has a has a has a dialect. Right. That I think I want my my British actors to sort of attempt. Well, then came Frightmare, but then <laughs> then <laughs> yes. You really hit home. With Reanimator, so this is what 1985, I think. 84, 84 is, is when, when we shot it. it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So tell me how that came about. This was a very regional. I mean, it was a, a, a Chicago theater director, Stuart Gordon, making his first feature film. Um, tell me how you became Dr. Herbert West. By the fates, uh, the fickle, fickle backhand of fate, I was doing a play on Melrose in a little theater called The Zephyr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing a, a three-man play. Uh, for some reason, casting director uh, came and saw it. Uh, I didn't invite him. And he said, uh, you know, you might be right for something that I'm casting right now and I got a call from my agents and I uh, you know got this material and I went in and there is this frizzy haired guy and uh, it's uh, Stuart Gordon mm-hmm. I don't really know who Stuart Gordon is although you know nobody they, did at that time no. other than the organic theater but, in but, Chicago yeah okay. but they said organic theater and that rang a bell to me because you know I'm sort of aware of that yeah. theater theaters around and um we kind of hit it off. I kind of did what I did. I, I, you know, this, this is what I do and um, got a call back. I was paired up with um, the great David Gale. Right. And we did the basement scene. 
Aha. Which, uh, and we both got the part. That's pretty amazing. You, well, you obviously abetted one another's performances. I think so. I went, well, this guy's, I got to step up here. This guy's good. I'll, I'll try to match him. Was so. the humor evident on the page? You know, that's a funny one. Uh, it was, it really wasn't. And my memory of it is, is that uh, uh, the wonderful Bruce Abbott, who plays the straight, earnest, the leading man, the leading man, and he's terrific in it, yeah. in the movie. He, he's just not get, doesn't get the praise that he should. Back to music, I got the lead solo, but I need the rhythm guitar, don't mm -hmm. I? To, to fly along on so uh he he laid that down perfectly for me and um we um we just had a an incredible time uh, but we said to each other you know there's a lot of blood in this thing and you and i he's also sort of a west coast actor we we had never worked together didn't know each other but we had a slew of friends that come in common so we had kind of same thought thinking you know mm -hmm. and we kind of went you know um, same process same process sort of you know we, we need to find some humor in here whenever we can to release some of this to counteract a lot of this just blood and gore and graphic nature of it and i think that our instinct was right because we would find moments that where we could just kind of let it release you know get just, a job in a sideshow yeah well that was written <clears throat> yes but things like uh, putting the head on the letter opener <gasps> that wasn't in that's the script. not in the script really no. well now Stuart is a guy if you don't know him it's hard to tell his sense of humor it can sneak up on you i mean he he did things when we were doing the black cat for masters oh, of horror which we'll get into yes. where you know he said well just get a, a a cat and we'll kill it and cut its eyes out it's like, <laughs> um and i didn't know him well enough to know if that was funny or not so on the, his first feature film as a director i'm sure he had a ton of things on his mind but he's working with the actors was it evident to to you that he was a source of much of the humor here to be honest i think stuart and this was probably right on his part. He pursued it deadly serious. I really don't think that he was going for humor. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that that is absolutely one of the happy accidents of the script is that his intent, it's almost like ingredients in a recipe. That intent is spot on because we never got too cute. Mm -hmm. We never... Uh, put our tongue too far into our cheek to let everybody know we, <laughs> we are just funning you, you know? Well, comedy seems best when it's played straight, especially straight, in the filmmaking. Straight. Yeah, there's uh, no boing. Now, of, now yeah. one of the things that Stuart did before we ever shot, first of all, I have to say we had rehearsal. We rehearsed the hell out of that before we ever got on set. And so he embraced the humor that you brought to it. To a degree, yes. Some of it maybe we kind of uh, injected you later. Him. <laughs> but but he sent Bruce and I to the LA morgue. He set up an appointment oh and he God. said, go to the morgue. And I'm like, I don't want to go to the morgue, man. This is just hideous. This is hideous. It was even hideous when we went. But I'll tell you what it did. The magic, the awe, the absolute unbelievable achievement of bringing the dead back to life. Mm was ignited in me because 
when you see a dead body, it ain't coming back. It's an inert, soulless thing that is in the form of a human being, but it's gone. So yeah. the fact that you could reanimate that is a miracle. Right. And so that really informed my performance. So that's the sort of things that Stuart would do. He could talk to me all day, but but making us do that was 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 everything. Being face to face with the dead must have been a jarring oh, it's experience, a, a frightening, sobering <laughs> experience. Yeah, I mean, we talked about with Ernest Dickerson uh, what uh, an experience that led to the script that I wrote for him to do on Masters of Horror, and to to see life vacated out of a body. It, it's uh, a complete. Yeah. It's a complete, and uh, I, I still have an image now of a of a man, uh, African American man, in it with a tube coming out of his ribs. Well, I don't know why he had a mm -hmm. tube coming out of his ribs, and he was just. Um, well, tell tell me a little bit about those conversations that you and Stewart had about Herbert West, or even the overall film in general. Um. Conversations, uh, well, just our, our rehearsals were deadly serious mm -hmm. and um, just getting prepared because, well, Stuart comes from the theater. Rehearsals are second nature. So, you know, now you go on a – whenever you go on a set, it's like the rehearsals are <laughs> – Right before you shoot take one. While the yeah. first AD is looking at his watch going, <laughs> yes. can't we – yeah. Can't we go? And this is uh, undermines actually uh, a lot of uh, you know. There's no room for that kind of work, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, in the, it's really sad. It's really sad because problems get solved. Mm -hmm. That later, if you're a director, you might sit in the editing room and go, "If we'd only." Yeah, and. In the case of Reanimator, you've got a first-time director with a, a great cast. Mm -hmm. uh, you, Barbara, Barbara Crampton, oh. David Gale, Bruce, Bruce uh, Abbott, Abbott uh, and, and uh, you know, but you also have an incredible number of makeup effects, practical makeup, corpses, and things, all, all kinds of shit all going down. Practical and <laughs> yes. gallons of blood. Yes, and Stewart was like, you know, the makeup people would put blood on, and then Stewart would just take their gallon and just dump it on you dump it just dump it and they would be like my work and yeah. he'd be like no that's better okay let's go and what do you do for take two <laughs> you don't i guess so i'm guessing that there weren't many take twos because the nature of the stunt people uh and makeup effects and what they're wearing or not wearing um all of that and and breakdown of set pieces and the like I don't imagine there was time to do resets and do it again. Uh, you know, I don't have much of a memory of how many takes we did. Mm -hmm. But I would probably gather that it was probably two, three, four, moving on. Get, let's get that coverage, that, right. uh, that, that kind of thing. I, I know Stuart, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop until he was happy with what he had. Right. But uh, I don't remember us, like, getting in a quagmire of, like, take 12 or something. Um so, you know, so I, this was it was a big success, a, a very low budget film that, in independent movie terms, 
became a classic. Oh, I never would have imagined. I didn't think it at the time. I thought this is really great chemistry we're having here. I'm, I'm, I'm loving doing this, but it did not occur to me that this would be, we'd be sitting here talking about it. <laughs> about this 30-some no, years ago. that didn't yeah. enter my mind. So, but it sort of set the course of your career for a while. Um, and was that something you found constrictive or something that was exciting for you because it gave you opportunity? Yes and no. Yeah, yes, both. It, 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 I was I was very happy, elated with the with the um, success of it, but at the same time it hint, it, it it blocked me and oh you're that guy oh right. you do that right now I'm got all this training and I'm done all these different kinds of genres uh, versatility is what i pride myself in and then it's like no do that again and then do it again and then uh, that, well, well, well if we need that we'll call you yeah then it becomes the only thing you do and so if it was if my first thing was a sitcom right it'd be the same thing yeah. No, I had that with Steven Weber. Had I seen the show Wings, I never would have cast him as uh, Jack Torrance. In and the why show. is that? Because I would have known him as this funny, jokey guy and not this serious actor playing Jack Torrance with a breakdown. Yeah, because it, no one, it doesn't occur to people that, well, you can do both. Well, the good news is that I read him. That's opposite right. Rebecca de Mornay. And I said, this actor is amazing. Okay. And I would have thought of him as the goofy brother in, in Wings had I ever seen the show, which to this day, I still not. So it gave me a lot of opportunities yeah. from beyond and, 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 and everything else. But, but at the, the same from time, beyond was Stuart, Stuart. H.P. Lovecraft, you and Barbara Crampton going for lightning in a bottle a second time. Repeat business, basically. Yeah. And that's fine. But, you know, the you know, I also say this about Reanimator. It was a bastard child that excelled, and and it's an outrageous movie. And most casting directors in this town then were women. Right. They really didn't want to have anything to do ah. with this success of this irreverent and perhaps. Uh, offensive, offensive <laughs> movie, and right. so in it didn't open doors for me. Really, not really. Other no. than in independent horror, other movies. than in independent horror movies. Interesting. Well, let's let's talk about another big step that your career turned to. I uh -oh. mean, you were Star Trek. Yes, Star three different series of Star Trek, and I think something like nine different characters over the course of those three. Well, series. you're stretching a little bit. I, I am, but seven, seven different, okay. three recurring roles, three recurring roles, which is pretty amazing. It's uh, you're lucky if you get one. Okay, so, so tell me how that came about. Were they fans of Reanimator, or they just you came in and read and and? Well, I couldn't happened? get arrested on Next Generation. I remember uh, that uh, that I yeah I even auditioned for the original cast, but I was not right for uh, the part and didn't expect that at all, in any way, shape, or form. But then they never they never brought me in to. Re even read for that series. And then along comes uh, Deep Space Nine. And I remember auditioning a couple of times and getting close once, but not getting it. And then I went in for one, and the director was 
Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> that helps. And I said, Jonathan, how are you? And uh, so I read. Um, there was also someone else in the room that I did not really know at that time, but it's very pivotal in my life now. And uh, as I left, Jonathan said, Jeff, 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 when we auditioned for that thing, uh, you remember that? I went, yes, yes, of course I remember that. He said, did you, did you get that? Yeah, yeah, I did. Jonathan, he gave it, and he'd like, 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 <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I think I said, Jonathan, I think you're okay. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so I got cast. That was a wonder. I didn't think anything of it, but the great Rene Aubergenois oh, yeah. was getting ready to direct an episode. And it was a Ferengi episode. And he, I'd done theater with him, and he suggested me for, a, for this new Ferengi. And uh, they were slightly resistant because I just worked. That's a producer's right. job, right? Wait, no, we just used him. Yeah, but we're putting makeup on him. That's exactly <laughs> the argument. So, uh -huh. so that started recurring. And then they came to me and said, we want you to come and do something where we see more of your face. I thought they were bullshitting me. And um, they, they followed through on that. And the next thing I know, I'm... I'm juggling two different recurring roles. I was blessed on the same show. On the same which show, which is pretty amazing. I'm the only. I'm the. I'm the I'm, you know what actor when his agent calls and they say they want to book you, and then you go, wait, 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 don't hang up. Which role? <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know. Let me call him. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. And that's just the first of the three series that you did. Well, yeah, I only did one Voyager. The other one is uh, is is Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that experience of jumping. From, what was the difference between the shows, the way they were run, the way they felt? Was it or did it feel like the same team, the same kind I guess of work? The only way I could say that is how, what's the difference between a, uh, a Ford Falcon and a Ford, right. you know, uh, Thunderbird, Thunderbird <laughs> or they, they all came down the same line. Right. OK. They were all assembled essentially in a perfect uh, construction. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a well-run system that works really well. And so it was very familiar in all of them. It mm -hmm. was just, I know this process and they, you know, they'd worked it out. So it was, it was almost like, kind of like I say this, you can't go home, but you can visit the neighborhood. <laughs> well put. So, so it was very similar, different, but similar. Well, that must have opened up new options for you, too. People didn't think you, of you as the reanimator guy anymore. That's right. I was really pleased about that. Not that I'm completely proud, so grateful and proud of, of, of the reanimator guy. Yeah, and you're not like Christopher Lee who resented Dracula to the day of his death. Uh, yes, yeah. not me. Yeah. I'm, I, it got me on the dance floor, and I, I appreciate that. And still grateful to and this And you played day. him three times, Herbert West, right? And then yeah. I got to do that. So I, 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 it's not like that. But it did allow me to be able to say, you know what? It's not horror. It's sci-fi. And it's completely different. And okay. it's totally mainstream. The yeah. whole world was seeing it. Right. right. Mainstream or not, it's different. Right. And so just try to say, oh, he just does that. Right. And so what would you say are the hallmarks of what your, your screen personality is? Wow. 
That's a good one because I don't know. Honestly, yeah. I don't know what my screen personality is. I, 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 I guess over the years I've sort of decided there's kind of like two, two worlds of actors. There's actors that are chameleons or aspire to that. And then there are persona actors that are essentially always who they are. Who they are. Yeah, yeah. And it's phenomenal mm-hmm. who they are. Cabri Grant is Cabri Grant, you know, and and it's always going to be that, and you love it, and it's comforting. It's like Haagen-Dazs ice cream or something, but I'm not one of those guys. Mm -hmm. I'm really not even, I can do it. Well, there, there are things that you bring. There is an intellect and a sense of humor that's always there in whatever you do. I suppose that if you were to distill it down, those might be, I don't know about the intellect. Yeah, I do. I don't think my wife would know <laughs> say that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, but, that is false. Yeah, yeah no, you know, but I, but I do sort of try to find, you know, I try to be honest, but I also try to find uh, a motivation that's believable, too. A drive and a thrust, and a, and a focus. Tell me about tell me about acting under makeup. When I was in, um, I think it's freeing. Actually, yeah. some some actors are suffocated by it. But when I was in training, we had a whole semester with mask work, and at the time, I did not think it was pivotal. But boy. Like kabuki theater type. No, thing? it wasn't really yeah. like that. It was a it's a whole this whole process. My movement teacher had these masks, and they were white, and and they had expressions, uh-huh. and they and then there was a neutral mask, and he'd put you in front of a mirror and say, "Put that mask on." And the moment you put that mask on and look at yourself, you carry yourself differently. Your posture changes. Based on what you see, you if it's a sad sort of melancholy, pitiful face, all of a sudden your shoulders drop and your your knees buckle a little. Mm-hmm. You just you know how that feels. But if it's something noble and and great, that's all of a sudden you're 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 standing more erect and you're more confident even. So this is really valuable. Well, because mostly actors work from the inside out and right. this you're able to see from the outside in right. from like what a director's job is to be the eyes that sees your that's, outside. That's right. So it's it's this strange outside informing inside mm-hmm. process. So for me that was a a pivotal lesson to learn. And then the neutral mask was the hardest of all because it's do nothing. Right. And that's really uh, uh, that's when you could do that. That's when you were really um, understood the lesson, you know. So I was really comfortable with what I consider as highfalutin mask work. Right. Really. Oh, uh, that's good. Were you ever in an episode where you were in the same episode as both characters in the same scene? One, not in the same scene, <clears throat> not in, in the, the same, same scene, but right. in the same episode. I, I advocated for a scene. But they said that would be, you know how much that would cost. <laughs> yes. Always a primary consideration. <laughs> yes. Now, I talked a little in the introduction about the different options for actors these days. You've done a lot of animation. I got my SAG card doing voices on the Pink Panther cartoon. Nice. But um, you have done like a career's worth of animation, the Avengers and, and Ninja Nick, Turtles. Nick, and, it, 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 it's found me. I, I, um, when I first started doing it, you know, 
I mean, the listeners out there may not know it, but you kind of have to have a a different agent. Really? Yeah. For voiceover. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, your agency may have a department, but it's not the same people that are out there trying to get you camera work. And it's, so it's a whole thing. And, and so at first I was just getting calls uh, like, would you come in and do, um, you know, uh, Scarecrow and Batman, or would you come in and do the question in Justice League Unlimited? We're like, yeah, sure, I guess. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. And then I would go in there, and it would be like, my God, these people have skill sets here. This is amazing. This is a whole other world I didn't even imagine. And at some point, I got a voiceover agent, and then I started uh, laying down auditions, and, you know, every once in a while, you get one. Right, but you got a lot of them and recurring ones, and uh, mostly superhero type stuff, it seems. Well, it's mostly superhero type oh, stuff out there, yeah. you know, so it kind of goes with the territory. I was always fascinated by it because when I was a kid, I wanted to make animated cartoons. And I'd never seen the process, you know, other than the animation process, watching Disneyland as a kid and all those things. But my first experience doing voices was, first of all, you can do up to three voices. And if you do one more, they have to pay you more. That's one of the SAG rules. Right. Um, so they had me do three voices right. per, per show. Well, but, you're better than me. Because I'm usually the um, I'm usually just the part that I do, and they they never come oh. to me and go, "Can you also do?" Because I, I I don't know, I'm not yeah. one of those guys. Yeah, but mine were the little dinky parts where I was a singing Mexican frog, a uh, golden sheep, and a horse with a cold. So who would you know? know? Who would exactly. who would know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But what I was shocked by was that it was kind of a conference table, and all of the actors were sitting around it, including Dan Castellaneta and a lot of really other top voice people and basically you could tell they'd never looked at the script before and the director is saying okay now you just ran into a wall you say ouch don't do that to me and then the guy goes ouch don't do that to me and then the next guy, don't do yeah. that to me yeah exactly and it shocked me because i'd never seen filmmaking where nobody knew what they were doing until the director just said you say this now you say it this way you say and it goes around the table as each of them takes it apart was that the the experience you had as well or have in all of these uh, not really. hundreds of uh, well, episodes well i would say you don't have much time with the material but you get a little bit of it to sort of get it under your belt and get through the um tricky parts you know sometimes things are a little like what what does that mean and how would i do that uh, what am i saying there anyway uh, how do they want that? You know, um, but for the most part, uh, you know, it's like radio. It's like yeah. you get a script and you kind of your instinct takes over and you make your best effort and they go, give us three of those. You right. know, sometimes it's like we'll pick the best one, you know. Uh, but are you usually I always imagined it was one actor in a booth at a time. No, I always did, too. Yeah. And instead, it's a horseshoe affair yeah. with everybody with a, either sitting or at a or standing at a at a music stand uh, with a microphone with a filter in front of it. And uh, I really love that because you can still uh, react. Right. Right. So you actually have the other actors around you. It's great. And your response is immediate to what they just did. Right. So they'll they'll run a page and a half and they go, okay, let's do that again. And then I think we got it. Moving on. Well, let's let's jump to another character with whom you've become very closely associated, starting with uh, the Black Cat on Masters of Horror. 
which is where we first really kind of got to know each other. Yes. Um, that, to this day, I still think is, if not the best, certainly one of the best of all of the episodes we did. Um, every one-line part in that show, is, every character actor's face is perfect, their voice is perfect, but you played Edgar Allan Poe. Tell me, tell me what kind of research you and Stuart and Dennis may have done together or um, on your own. You know how that kind of came, came about? Stuart wanted to kill a cat? <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, uh, the, the germination of it was I remembered that uh, my 50th birthday party. I had a, people over, not a lot, you know, but Stuart was one of them. And I said to Stuart, you know, Stu, I just read this autobiography of Poe. I cannot believe that no one has made a movie of this man's life. He's like America's Van Gogh. It's like you've got lust for life. Why, why isn't there? This is just beautiful and tragic and rich and complex and he's fascinating. And Stuart didn't really say much, but he listened. Hmm. And maybe a year later, uh, eight months, I get an email. Jeff, attached as a script, I want you to play Edgar Allan Poe. And this beautiful script of the Black Cat. Great script. God, it's a great script because they took a story of Poe's written in first person, mm -hmm. but they made Poe the protagonist. And that way they could blend into this story of obsession, this, this obsession with a cat that he thinks is out to get him with details of Poe's life. And it's just, uh, I have to say, you, sir, gave us the platform wow. to allow artists like Stewart and other great directors to be able to fulfill their visions it, to the fullest. It was the whole point of it, the show. And, you know, bless you for that. Well, thanks. But I mean, all I was was an enabler. <laughs> you know? Well, you enabled beautifully because <laughs> you. You, there was no, um, there was, we had full support there. I, 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 you know, a lot of the time you do things and they show up and uh, it's like, try this suit on. Well, it doesn't quite fit, but that's mm -hmm. good. They built a costume. Yeah. Period costume with great care and love and finesse and detail. They, they, I was in wonderful hands. It was a great group of people who did amazing work. A lot of filmmakers did some of their best work in years because we basically just said, do what you want to do. We don't have much time. We don't have much money, but do what you want. And let me do. tell you, on film. That's the last, yeah. that's the last time I ever, I've ever worked on film. Yeah. And it was gorgeous. That may be the last time I've ever worked with 35 millimeter film. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now I stand on set and it's like they're talking and kibitzing and I'm going, no one ever called cut. Right. We're still rolling. It's, 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 no one cares. I don't want to be the editor when they keep rolling. Yeah. Take after take I after know. take. You but, can't see everything. But Poe was, uh, it was a beautiful script and I just went, I mean, you know, I just dove into that and, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And well, the first season Stuart did Dreams from the Witch House, another HP <laughs> Lovecraft. Right. And then he went to Poe and, and that, film turned out so beautifully and i assume that is what inspired the one-man show that you and Stuart are doing now which you've been doing well, for the last couple of years i've been doing it less than i used to but on set is where it happened hmm. Stuart said you know you ought to do a one-man show hmm. i said there's no way i'm doing a one-man <laughs> no, no 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 
And but he was like Yoda, mm. and just gentle, prodding, bringing it up over the months, years, till finally I well, well, what would that be like? I mean, he kind of just got me to the place, and we laid out a structure of what pieces we would like to begin and end, and what pieces we'd like to do, and then the great Dennis Paoli, a a Gothic literature professor right. at Hunter College, did some research and found writings of Poe to dovetail all of these, make it into a magical evening. But here's 90 minutes of dialogue you have to memorize. Yes. And Stuart once again came to the rescue. He said, don't, don't think about that. Just, I'll tell you what, this week, learn a poem. Ah. And then next week, learn another poem. And then, well, the Raven, maybe that'll take three or four weeks, but <laughs> just that's what you do. Get those things, and they'll also learn. They didn't really have to memorize Telltale Heart because in the in in our you have the book. I ha I had the pages. I could, you know, I'm I'm in a recital. It's okay if I look down, right? So um, I had all. So so that was good. So then when the the details, the the stuff between came, I already had that other stuff kind of already in the memory bank so then i just had to learn the 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 the, 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 the sinews that that connect the tissue i saw the first preview you did and it was great yeah at the steve allen theater raw weird it was raw and weird and and only i could sense this tension in you of am i going to make it through this and yes. it, it made it great because it felt like you were jumping off a roof well you know? i was and then two months later i saw it and it was the most assured, perfect, natural performance. And it was great. I mean, the first one was great, but I could sense knowing you, this tension within. And yet I have to say, because I used to do theater. Yeah. I have to say that when I went out there on that very first night that you were out there uh, in the foot, uh, under the footlights there, <laughs> yes. I, right before I had, uh, the darkness came, right before it all started, a little voice in my head said, I'm home. Ah, I, I'm back to where I, where it all started, right. really. But had you done it before solo, or was it always a shared experience uh, with other actors? Always a shared experience. Yeah. And let me tell you something: a one-man show for an actor is a great thing to have in your, in in your back pocket to pull out. But it's also incredibly lonely. Yeah, there's no one to bounce things off of. There's no one to talk about it. There's no one to go have a beer with afterwards. No. When it's done at the end of the night, it's like. Mm -hmm, yeah. But I was also a part of that audience that fed you. Yes, the, the audience they react throughout. It's they not... are the other character. Exactly. So, what would you say is the heart of the character of Edgar Allan Poe? Oh, there, it's so complex. Mm -hmm. um, he was a very brilliant, proud man. And I think that he was crushed by, at the center of him, Mick, that he knew that he was good. He knew that perhaps he was great. And yet he was not truly appreciated by his peers and or by his generation. I mean, he, that's, that's really got to really hurt. What does a guy have to do? I mean, he just proved over and over that he was a genius, and yet he was dismissed. The world wasn't ready for him. Looked down upon him. He died penniless yeah. in a pauper's grave. And then 20 years later, it just breaks my heart that 20 years later, 
oh, wow, yeah, yeah, we got him. He's buried out there. Let's move him to a more prominent spot in front of the church. We're proud of him now. Mm-hmm. Well, you weren't so proud of him at the time. And it's just, um, it's heartbreaking. But how great to have a career that continues as it is and to still be able to create an iconic performance like Poe in this play. I mean, to still be as vital as you were when you started at this point after 30 years, uh, 30 some years is pretty remarkable. Uh, it was a gift that I didn't see coming. I, I really didn't know if I could fulfill it, but you, you know, sometimes you have to take a leap of, of faith and just uh, acting uh, requires a lot of balls and bravery. Just yeah. do it. Go. Don't think about it. Just don't think about result. Think about process and if it comes together in people's minds and it's and it sings then so much the better but you can't think about what if i make a mistake you just have to do it well we the audience are really glad that you're a guy who who will jump without a net so Uh, yes uh, sometimes you uh you, you don't hit the net, but <laughs> yeah. in, in that case, I was pretty lucky. Well, we got a few questions that oh. we'll bring up from the uh, Twitter audience, and yeah. we'll do that in just a moment. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Okay, before we get to our Q&A, Podcast One has a brand new app for you to discover the show. Find out everything about your favorite Podcast One shows, including Postmortem with Mick Garris, through the all-new Podcast One app, available now in the App Store or on Google Play. Find links to articles, social media, make playlists with your favorite episodes, and connect with other fans of the show. You can even create your own polls to debate your favorite horror films. We have our own little community on there. Check out exclusive content such as behind-the-scenes photos and so much more. And if you have 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality, there's over a thousand videos on the app right now. It's like you're in the studio. There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play. Eerie INT asks, can you tell us more about your experience on Love and a 45? It's an underrated gem and a personal favorite. And a personal favorite of mine, too. Uh-huh. I love this movie. If, if, if I had to pick uh, uh, top five movies that I've done, uh, it would be in there. Love and a 45 uh, was Renee Zellweger's second movie. It is the movie that got her Jerry Maguire. Hmm. It has an incredible cast. It's sassy as shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is Tarantino pre-Tarantino. It was accused of copying uh, Natural Born Killers. However, it was made before Natural Born Killers. Hmm. Uh, It is a marvelous script, incredible dialogue, just boldly written uh, characters and uh, a great soundtrack, and it is—I uh, mean, it goes from Johnny Cash to Butthole Surfers. I mean, it's <laughs> it's all over the place. This, yeah. and um, I'm I'm very proud of it. And I remember when I auditioned for it that I was going in for another role, and they said they said no, no, don't read that one. Read this one. I was pissed. Why in the world? All my preparation, but you know what? The words sometimes just sing yeah whether yeah. you're ready for it or not you just and i got the part and i'm so glad i did okay um what a turk asks what happened to the full film that evil clergyman was supposed to be a part of <laughs> well you have to probably ask charlie band about that <laughs> uh it fell under the um uh you know uh 
Empire Pictures fell apart. Right. And Charlie had this idea of a trilogy. Uh, I think there was a Trancers episode and there was a Richard Mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then evil clergyman. And I, I, it was shot in uh, Italy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that when everything fell apart, um, Charlie lost track of, uh, the material even. So it was lost, uh, until Charlie found like a three quarter inch tape at the bottom of uh-huh. some box in storage and, and, and brought it back to, to life. Almost to life. <laughs> almost, almost to life. Uh, so that's sort of why it got fell between the cracks. Uh, mm-hmm. Legal caca. One of those. One of those. Uh, one more for you, and then there's one for me, actually. Uh, Zachary asks, is there a, love cor- a Lovecraft story that hasn't been adapted to film yet that you would like to see happen? Well, yeah, a couple of things. I, I, I read a wonderful script of Guillermo del Toro's once of the about Mountains of Madness, Madness. Uh, and I thought that was terrific. Um, Sorry that that didn't blossom. That gestated for a long time. It did and also uh, the the, the uh, I may have the name wrong. The Hound. Uh, mm. It's about um, grave diggers that 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 dig up people yeah. to get valuable things, amulets and stuff right. like that. But they that they've been buried with, yeah. But that they've been Which, buried with. But this also brings up evil spirits, and uh, I think there was a three-headed dog that would nice yeah you know <laughs> that's pretty lovecrafty it's, yes yeah, very good. very lovecraft so so that's a yes that's good <laughs> yeah um okay charlie asks me when you put enya in sleepwalkers did you have any idea it would still be stuck in our heads 25 years later well if it is god bless you but that was not my original choice um my favorite band at the time was crowded house and yeah. i actually showed them the film before it was finished and they gave me an original song for the end of the movie. And the studio didn't want to buy it. They had Was given, it too much? It, it cost too much. Uh-huh. And um, they, gave, they had given me a series of CDs to listen to of music that would be easy for them to use. And so the Enya tune was one that I selected. Out of, this was... Uh, you know, at in 1992. Right. So there's lots of grunge was happening. And right. They, so I had all of these grunge albums and things like that. And and this one piece that Enya did was something great. I really wanted the Crowded House song, but they wouldn't let me have it. And so this Enya piece actually probably works better. And I hate to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> the right. studio was right. But in this case, it worked you out. You and Peter Jackson. Yeah. Didn't she, didn't he use... Uh, oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But I'll bet it was his choice. Yeah, but you were first. <laughs> that's great. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a total blast. Nick, you're, be- you're the best. And I have to say, thank you for the for the wardrobe, you know. Without you, <laughs> without you, Poe wouldn't have wardrobe. Because, <laughs> I won't take credit uh, for Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll take it on behalf of our wardrobe uh, department. You're the best. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for joining us for the Postmortem Podcast. You can contact us with questions or suggestions via Twitter at PostmortemMG. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 